just before I start, can we just pause for a moment and just take a couple of minutes of just silence and, and just to give you space to respond to just maybe some of the words that we've been singing about trust and about taking everything to God in prayer. And just as David has been leading us in thoughts around prayer, so just a couple of minutes of silence for you just to respond in the quietness of your own heart. Shepherd, Lord, thank you that we can trust in you alone. And friend, Jesus, thank you that we can take everything to you in prayer. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I introduced our new Sunday evening series, Revealed. And I made the point that, that God has revealed himself to us, and therefore we can know not only who God is, but we can know God personally and relationally as we were created to do. And, and I identified four key ways how God has revealed himself, and they were, better feedback, what were the four ways that God has revealed himself to us? Sorry? Creation, yep. His word, yep. Two more. Conscience and through Jesus. Yeah, there are two general ways, two specific ways. The two general ways are through creation, that God's fingerprints are all over the created order. And God can be seen from what he has made, according to Paul in Romans 1 and verse 20. And the second sphere of general revelation is his conscience that somehow the way we have been morally hardwired reveals God. That humanity intuitively knows the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. It's built in, it's written into our hearts. And yes, we've been deeply affected as a result of sin, but God, according to his word, can still be known via the human conscience. Those are the two general ways. The two specific ways then are one through Scripture. God has revealed himself in his written word, and therefore as we read it, as we hear it, as we engage with this sacred text, we discover who God is. We discover more about his character and his story. And then the second area of specific revelation is through Jesus. And a fortnight ago, we looked at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, which communicate that fact and remind us that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. The exact representation. 
And in the words of Jesus himself, anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Or as Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so God is revealed in and through and by Jesus. And and therefore, this series is about looking again and afresh at a number of incidents and moments in the life of Jesus to explore, well, what do those incidents that we're going to look at over the next few months, what do these incidents and moments uh, tell us, reveal to us about who Jesus is and about who God is so that we can get to know and worship him better and enjoy him forever? So, Ultimately, this is a series or another series about Jesus, and I I don't apologize for that. And the first incident that I want us to turn to is is found in John's Gospel. It's John chapter 2. It's page 1064 in those red pew Bibles, and it is the wedding at Cana. Just a little bit of background before we look at this fascinating event. In chapter 1, and and David already, and I didn't realize he was going to do that, but David already has read some of the verses from John chapter 1. But in in John chapter 1, John introduces Jesus using various titles and names. He's clearly keen to get the identity of this Jesus out there. And as quickly as possible, it seems. And so in that first chapter, and this is a great exercise, by the way, to just go through that chapter and look at all the names and titles for Jesus. Here's a selection of them. He is the Word. He is the Light. He is the One and Only from the Father. He is God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah or the Christ. He's a prophet like Moses. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is King of Israel. He's Rabbi. He's the Son of Man. All in the space of one chapter. In fact, less than a chapter. There's a sermon in every one of those. But after John puts these out there, he then tells us about Jesus calling his first followers, his first disciples. And by the end of chapter 1, he's called five. And there are five who are following him. And then at this point, John records the first incident where Jesus reveals his glory. And it happens in a rather unlikely place, at a wedding. John is the only gospel writer to recall this event. And right up front before we we read the story, it's important to highlight that John does not refer to what happens here as a miracle. Without looking too far down, what, what does John call what happens here at Cana? It's not a miracle, it's a what? It's a sign. So important we we get that. This is not the first miracle of Jesus. It was, to quote John, the first of his signs. And in John's gospel, does anyone know how many signs there are? Think of the perfect number. Brilliant. Seven signs. The other thing I, I also want to say quickly before we read the story is that some people immediately get preoccupied with two issues the minute you mention the wedding at Cana. The two issues are alcohol and the way you speak to your parents. Okay? Now, both of those issues are in here. I'll say something about them, maybe. Probably not. 
but they must be seen in the context of the story and not as the reason why you should or shouldn't drink alcohol or talk to your parents in a particular way. So please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, and I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Grab a seat. Jesus was a people person. Jesus was a people person. He enjoyed spending time with others. And so he gets invited to a local wedding. Wh whose wedding? Well, we don't know. doesn't really matter. But along with his mum, Jesus and his disciples, and we assume it's the five that have started following him, they are invited to a big fat Jewish wedding. And they go. And when I say that Jesus enjoyed spending time with others, he clearly did, he really did, because this wasn't just for a couple of hours. This wasn't even a kind of day out of his busy schedule. This event would have lasted for about a week. Six to seven days. That's why I said it was a big fat Jewish wedding. I wasn't being politically incorrect or insensitive. You see, Jesus invested time with people. Jesus loved to share life, everyday life as well as key moments of life with others. He entered in. He got alongside. He wasn't a recluse. Yes, there were occasions when he sought solitude, but for the most of his time, for a lot of his time, Jesus was with people. He joined in. He got involved. He enjoyed their company, and for the most part, people enjoyed his company. That's why they kept inviting him to parties, to weddings, to meals. And without making too big a deal of this, you know, Jesus is still a people person. He wants to be and he enjoys being part of and involved in our everyday lives, including the milestone moments. So make sure we're inviting Jesus along. We're inviting Jesus in. 
But at some point in this week, the wine runs out, verse 2. Now, in most situations, or from our point of view, you probably think, well, well, it's going to happen at some stage. Surely that's natural. There's only so far the budget can stretch. And so when it's done, it's done. And anyway, if it never runs out, if there's an endless supply and this goes on for a week, it's going to get messy. But that misses the point. Because in that culture and in that context, running out of wine wasn't just a disappointment, wasn't just an oversight, wasn't just unfortunate. It was an embarrassment. It was a disgrace. This family and the bridegroom in particular who would have been hosting this wedding is going to be the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. The shame, the guilt. And so Mary intervenes, and and she isn't ever in John's gospel referred to as Mary, interestingly. But Mary intervenes. She sees what has happened, and so she tells Jesus about the problem. She says, they have no wine, verse 3. Clearly, she realizes this is not a good situation. This is not a good development in proceedings. And so she invites Jesus into the crisis. And again, reinforcing what I've already said about inviting Jesus. And I also believe that he longs to be involved in those crisis moments of ordinary life. And Mary shares this current problem with Jesus. And Jesus turns around to his mom and says, woman. What concern is that to you and me? And for many people, that jars. It doesn't sit well. Why the formality? Addressing his mum as woman seems rather cold. And as I said earlier, some people get hung up on this. Some people are upset by this. And so it's important to realize that Jesus was not being disrespectful. He was not being dismissive to his mother. And the reason we know that is because of the other time that Jesus spoke to Mary in exactly the same way. We test, does anyone know the other time that Jesus called his mom woman from the cross? towards the end of John's gospel. As he hangs on a cross, dying, and as he looks down and he sees his mum with John, incidentally, he somehow manages to say, woman, behold your son, and son, take care of my mother. And we all know that there was compassion there was concern in his voice. That formal address, or the, the, what we think is a formal address and title, was not out of order. It was not harsh. It was actually respectful. But maybe it's, it's the other part of Jesus' reply to Mary in John chapter 3 or 2 at the wedding that we find strange. What concern is that to you and me? Or in some versions, why do you involve me here? And that, that sounds a bit off. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, see if I care. But again, we need to read on. You need to keep reading because what Jesus says next is vital. My hour has not yet come. That phrase appears at least five other times in John's gospel. And it makes clear that Jesus knew there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. I'm on a mission. 
I'm heading in a particular direction. My life is heading in a particular direction. I'm ultimately about my father's business. I cannot rush this. I cannot press fast forward. I cannot upset the plan. The R lay ahead. In fact, it lay a few years ahead because as we all know, the R turned out to be a reference to the cross and to his death as John 12 tells us. You see, if Jesus did or said too much here at this wedding in Cana, he was going to knock everything out of sync. And so he says to his mom, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. But maybe from Mary's point of view, she's impatient and she's agitated, not so much about the wine nightmare, but about the timing of what she believed about her son. You see, before his birth, She and Joseph had been told that their son, this Jesus, was going to save his people from their sins. Shepherds confirmed the uniqueness of this boy. Wise men confirmed the uniqueness of this boy. Simeon confirmed the uniqueness of this boy. And even when he was 12 and he got lost, Jesus had made it clear to his mom that he was about his father's business. Jesus is now 30, approximately. Not a lot has happened in 18 years. The reason I can say not a lot has happened in 18 years because there's no record of it. Between 12 and 30. And maybe Mary is wondering, when are you going to do all these? When are you going to save people? When are people going to realize that you're unique, that you're special, that you are the Messiah? Maybe Mary wanted the R to come a lot quicker. I don't know, maybe that's just conjecture. But again, Jesus was not being rude or dishonoring to his mom. He was simply letting her know, Mom, not yet. Not yet. Now is not the time. I'm working off. I'm working to another timetable, a different timetable. And let me make this comment before we go on. You know, there are moments, there are those occasions whenever we want or we think it's about time God did something here. It's about time God did something now. Even something he has said he will do. We might even have an idea about exactly what we want God to do. But you know something? It's not up to us. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we think needs to happen in that situation or this situation. God is working out his purposes. God is in control. And we need to submit to that and try not to dictate or get ahead of ourselves or get ahead of God. Jesus, in this moment, reveals that God's timing, not not our timing, is paramount. And Mary, it seems, gets that. She gets it. And so she turns around to the servants at the wedding and she says, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. Not what I tell you. Not what anyone else tells you, because I've no doubt there were a few people running around in a bit of a panic. But no, Mary says, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. And even as a standalone sentence and instructions, you know, that's worth noting. Because obedience to Jesus, doing what Jesus says every single time is wise counsel. And as again, Jesus himself will say, see, if you love me, you will do what I say. And so Mary says to these servants, just do whatever he tells you. Now, although Jesus recognizes that the hour has not come, he doesn't ignore the problem. He doesn't leave the party. 
Jesus tells the servants to fill the six stone jars that were used for purification rites, to fill them to the brim with a total of something like 120 to 180 gallons of water. And then they were to take a glass from one of the stone jars and they were to take a con- the contents of a, gl- a glass con- uh, the contents of one glass to the chief steward. And so they do that. They scoop the contents out. They take it to the chief steward. And when the chief steward tastes the exquisite wine, he sends for the bridegroom. But rewind for a moment because look again at verse 9. The master of the banquet, the chief steward, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I have to be honest, I'm not sure I ever really noticed this before. You see, the master of the banquet has no idea where this stuff has come from. He just thinks the bridegroom has kept the best to last. And we're not even sure he ever knows. Or if the bridegroom ever knows for that matter. But one group of people do know. And it's the servants. It's the slaves. They're the ones who sense that something or someone remarkable is amongst them. You see, it's the least who get the inside track. It's the last who get first insight into Jesus' power and authority. And this pattern tends to be repeated time and time again in the Gospels. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. It's a Gospel principle. And let me say something else about this. Jesus does do an incredible thing. Jesus does do, if you, will, if you like, a miraculous thing. But very few people at the time knew about it or realized it or acknowledged his input or intervention. And I wonder, does that still happen more than we realize or see or acknowledge? Where Jesus influences, alters, changes, recovers situations and lives, and we don't always perceive it. It goes right under the radar. And so the chief steward calls for the bridegroom, takes him to one side and says to him, everyone else brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap stuff whenever the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you've saved the best to last. I wonder how the bridegroom responded. I've often wondered, But we're not told. For all we know, he stuck with that story and ended up being seen by most people, although not all, as a great host and someone whose party you should never miss. But we don't know how he responded. But in the text, John just immediately then says, verse 11, this is the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. How? What did it reveal? What did it point towards apart from the fact that Jesus, that God is not a killjoy? He's not. He keeps the party going. But apart from that, what else does this reveal, this sign? What else does it point to? Let me give you five things. 
And the first is that Jesus is an agent of transformation because Jesus turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. It's a sign of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to change things. Jesus has come to radically alter things. And this in itself is a sign that points in that direction. Secondly, it's a sign that Jesus will provide all we need and then some abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. It's a sign. It indicates that there's something different about Jesus. There's something different about God. He provides. Thirdly, it's a sign, and maybe this isn't so obvious, but it takes me back to something I said earlier. You see, to run out of wine at a wedding would have brought shame and guilt on the bridegroom, on the host. And what does Jesus do here? He lifts that, he sorts that, he steps in, and he does something to save the bridegroom from shame and guilt. And maybe just, maybe here is another indicator. Here is another sign of what Jesus came to do, that Jesus came to bring freedom from guilt and shame. And this points in that direction. Fourthly, It's also a sign that Jesus was destined to provide fine wine. You see, for John's readers, his first mainly Jewish readers of his gospel, they would have sensed this as they read this story subsequently. Many of them would have referenced Isaiah as they read about this incident. Isaiah 25, just one example, would have been ringing in their ears where the prophet talks about a new day, a great day, whenever the Lord is going to bring salvation, he's going to swallow up death, he's going to wipe away all tears, and here is how that day will be characterized. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, and of aged wine, well refined. You see, at Cana, Jesus made fine wine. Vintage wine. And this would have been a sign that Jesus was the one who would ultimately bring salvation and prepare people for the great feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, as John refers to. Again, John refers to it in Revelation 19. You see, here are glimpses of glory at a wedding. Jesus was destined to provide fine wine. And finally, it's a sign that Jesus will replace external purification rites such as hand washing with an internal cleansing of the heart. You see, there will come a night whenever Jesus will take wine And whenever he will say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, all of you drink of it. See, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And this incident at Cana pointed towards that reality. It's no longer about external purification. It's about being cleansed from the inside out. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating incident. I hope 
There is lots in there for you to take away and consider further, but may God's Word, may His written Word, may His living Word continue to reveal more of God, more of who God is so that we can get to know God better, worship Him better, enjoy Him forever as we continue to read and explore subsequent incidents in the life of Jesus over the weeks and maybe the months that lie ahead. And that we, as we do that, may see his glory here. We're going to close with a couple of songs. I'm going to introduce the first one. And it is, Lord, you have my heart. And it's a song that, that, that says in the chorus, and we'll see your glory here. And so I invite you to stand. Can I just say that, as always, the prayer room will be open afterwards, just next door. I know Vine is on as well, but if anybody would like to go in there just to quietly pray, to read, to reflect, to talk to someone you've come with in quietness, or for someone else to pray with you and for you, then just make your way in there and, and take a few moments uh, just after search for the start of another new week to pray and commit maybe what we've heard and in the week that lies ahead to God. Lord, you have my heart. Let's stand together again.